What's interesting is that traditionally, if you had a president of your party in his first midterm election, the average is you lose three Senate seats and you lose 22 House seats. What's interesting is that the Senate seems to be much more competitive than that. And because there aren't so many seats up for grabs in the House, the likelihood is the difference will not be enormous. Control of Congress is up for grabs November 8th. While most of the polls suggest that Republicans will take the House, the Senate remains in play and it could go either way. Right now, Democrats hold both chambers, but by slim margins. In the House of Representatives, they have the majority by just eight seats with three vacancies. And while the Senate is split 50-50, Vice President Kamala Harris, a Democrat, gets to cast the tie-breaking vote. Come Tuesday, we'll know whether President Joe Biden will have a path toward accomplishing more of his first-term agenda or whether the next two years will be deadlocked. I'm Doug Sovereign, and this is The Home Stretch, a political podcast from Odyssey. With an evenly divided Senate, there are several states that could determine which party has the edge in 2023, and they include Pennsylvania, Ohio, Nevada, Arizona, and North Carolina. But as the calendar flips to November, no single candidate has drawn as much attention down the stretch as Georgia Republican Herschel Walker. Walker is a former Heisman Trophy-winning running back at the University of Georgia. He's challenging incumbent Senator Democrat Raphael Warnock. Republicans are voting for Herschel Walker not because they like him personally or think he's some role model or has outstanding moral character. It's quite the opposite. That's Kabir Khanna. He's the deputy director of elections and data analytics for CBS News. They're voting for him to oppose the Democrats, and that means they're voting to oppose Raphael Warnock, the incumbent, and to oppose Joe Biden, which is something you see typically in midterms. The out party is energized to send a message to the party in power. So in many ways, it sounds like the way they feel about Herschel Walker in Georgia is a lot how many Republicans feel about Donald Trump. You know, they'll overlook his peccadilloes and controversies because they want him, not the Democrats. Absolutely. It's a very similar dynamic. A big reason Donald Trump won was negative partisanship. So this idea that you're voting not so much to support your side and enact your preferred policies, but to oppose the other side and out of antipathy for the other party. Two women claim Walker paid for their abortions. The first accusation came in early October from a woman who said Walker helped her get an abortion back in 2009. Before the month was over, though, a second woman came forward with an abortion claim dating back to 1993. Walker continues to deny those claims he's maintained his anti-abortion stance. I asked Lee Mirangoff, the director of the Marist College Institute for Public Opinion, how abortion is playing in this race. Obviously, after the Dobbs decision, there was this bounce for the Democrats in terms of enthusiasm and connecting to the race, obviously among women voters and suburban voters and young women voters. We've seen that in the numbers. I will say that people are not necessarily single-issue voters, and so the conclusion that people are reaching that abortion doesn't seem to matter as much as it did over the summer is probably you know just because of the immediacy over the summer of the numbers on abortion, not that it's now playing you know, second fiddle to lots of other things. People always have a conflation of different issues, and for Democrats and Republicans, one out of five Democrats is concerned about inflation. And that we think of as being the Republican issue. So there's a lot of crossing over and there's a lot of combinations of issues that make up the composite. Walker's opponent in the Georgia race, Warnock, is the pastored Ebenezer Baptist Church in Atlanta. 
he won election to the Senate in a special election runoff in January 2021. When you look at things like each candidate's personal likability, Warnock has the advantage on those sorts of characteristics, like being a strong moral character or being a good role model or having the right experience he leads really big on. But Walker supporters specifically say, I'm voting for him to oppose the other candidate or simply because he is the Republican. Herschel Walker is benefiting from Republicans eager to capture the majority in the Senate. I've asked some Democratic friends, if you had like a really horrible candidate, but you know, it was going to cost you the Senate, what would you do? Vote for that candidate, skip the ballot, or maybe even vote for the good candidate on the other side? And the answer is, well, if you're strongly partisan, you're going to stick with your guy and uh, stick with your party. And so I think the Walker vote is a stick with your party kind of vote, and particularly a Donald Trump stick with your party kind of vote. You know, it's so fascinating because, as you say, the split ticket thing, I think the candidate quality has made some of these Senate races closer than they would have been otherwise because J.D. Vance, were he, quote unquote, a normal Republican in Ohio, would probably run away with Ohio. If Walker were a, quote unquote, normal Republican, he might run away with Georgia. But the Democrats have chances in some of these states because of exactly what you just described, that there are reservations within the party Republicans about the guy their party nominated. Yeah. And Doug, don't forget Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. We mentioned Pennsylvania and Dr. Oz, another controversial candidate. He's got controversies around him. How much has he been hurt by all of that? And how do you like his chances there? And then there's the question of Democrat John Fetterman's health, which came up in their debate the other night. Is that a concern for voters? Yeah, I think that both candidates led with their weakness inadvertently or not. But Fetterman obviously was having a lot of problems articulating answers and was demonstrating concerns over how much transparency there's been over his health issues. Pennsylvania Lieutenant Governor John Fetterman is the Democratic candidate in the race for that state's open U.S. Senate seat. He suffered a stroke in May and he uses closed captioning to interpret information he receives verbally. In mid-October, his campaign released a note from his doctor stating that he has, quote, no work restrictions and can work full duty in public office. Dr. Oz managed to make himself look like a doctor with not a whole lot of compassion, given that his opponent had a stroke. But I think the key line out of Oz came at the end when he was talking about women's rights. And his line was, I think the decision on whether to have abortion should be a choice between the patient, the doctor, and your local politician, which creates an image of, is the mayor available right now? And can he come with me because I have to go visit my doctor? Similarly, in Ohio's Senate race, candidate quality appears to be a factor. The race pits Democratic Congressman Tim Ryan, who represents the Akron area, against Republican J.D. Vance, best known as the author of the New York Times bestselling memoir, Hillbilly Elegy. A lot of people think of Ohio as a quintessential swing state and always competitive and purple. That's really not true. It's a red state. Donald Trump won it by eight points both times around. That race certainly leans Republican. I know you've got some fresh data out of Ohio. How does that state look to you? Well, again, I sound like a broken record, but very close. What's interesting about Ryan, like in Pennsylvania, there you have a sort of blue-collar appeal. And Joe Biden did decently in some of the industrial Midwest states, then was able to eke out some electoral votes there where Hillary Clinton was not able to. But 
Vance has the stamp of Donald Trump's approval rating, and the numbers become very, very close in that state, and neither of them is at 50, so the magical midfield stripe has eluded them. Republicans only need to flip one seat to win a majority, but Democrats look like they have at least one or two opportunities to cancel that gain out. So it looks like the best Republican flip opportunity is going to come in Nevada, where our poll had Laxalt up by the tiniest of margins. He was leading by less than a point. So really, that's a toss-up state, and you should consider that poll showing an even race. Other GOP flip opportunities come in Georgia, which we talked about today, where Warnock is slightly ahead in the polling, and potentially in Arizona, where Mark Kelly is ahead in our polling by a slightly larger margin than those other Democratic incumbents. But on the other side of the point, the Democrats have a real flip opportunity in Pennsylvania and the open seat there. We are polling that state right now, and it looks like while the race has tightened, Betterman has a very narrow advantage at the moment, again, within the margin of error. There's also an opportunity for Democrats to flip Wisconsin, where a CBS poll showed incumbent Senator Ron Johnson ahead by just a point over challenger Mandela Barnes. How many persuadable independents or moderate Republicans or conservative-leaning Democrats are there for either side to move? It's really hard to put a precise figure on that. And a lot of political scientists and campaigns and analysts are trying. One way to think about it is that there are about a third of voters who identify as independents rather than Democrats and Republicans when it comes to their party identification. But even those independents will admit that they lean toward one of the major parties. And those independents who lean to a party act a lot like out-and-out partisans when it comes to their vote choice and their policy preferences and their emotions. So it's a much narrower slice than just the independents. In the past, elections have turned on the votes of soccer moms, working-class white men, suburban college-educated women, what have you. What demographics are you watching most closely right now? I mean, who do you think the hinge voter is in these midterms? That's a great question. And while we are following some of the usual demographic groups, such as college-educated women and Latino voters, we're doing something slightly different at CBS this year, which is looking at a group of election influencers who are defined not by ascriptive characteristics and demographics, but a little bit more by their lifestyles. Just an example of this, one group that's emerged in our polling, we refer to as pressured parents. These are folks who have kids under 18, who may also be caring for an elderly parent, who have been really stressed out over the last few years by COVID, the fallout from the pandemic, and by hurting financially. This emerged as a sizable chunk of the electorate. They appear to be leaning more Republican this year than they have in past years. And it's just one example of people telling us in the poll about the issues that matter to them and us trying to capture both their contribution to the overall votes this year and which way they might swing. For weeks, the conventional wisdom has been that the Republicans are going to win the House, the Senate is a toss-up, but the Democrats maybe have a slightly better chance of holding the Senate. Do you think that's still true? So I'm not a prognosticator, so I'll tell you where things stand now. That's how we do our job at CBS. Our battleground tracker has polled tens of thousands of voters across the country, including in every single congressional district and state. And what we do is we combine those 
polls with voter files and census data to produce an estimate of the race for Congress in terms of seats. What we don't do is just focus on some generic ballot number or a national popular vote, because that's not how Congress is won and lost. You have to go seat by seat. Let's look at the House first. Our latest estimate came out October 16th. And when we translate voters' current preferences to seats in the House, we see Republicans leading in 224 seats and Democrats leading in 211 seats. That would represent a fairly narrow Republican majority and a fairly narrow gain for a midterm year. In recent history, we've usually seen the out party make more substantial gains. The first midterm after a president is elected is not usually kind to his party. In 2018, in the midterm election after Donald Trump was elected, Democrats picked up 41 seats. In 2010, two years after Barack Obama took office, the Tea Party movement swept through Congress and Republicans picked up 63 seats. According to a Gallup poll last week, President Biden's approval rating is at 40 percent. I think the Democrats are swimming against some currents. They're swimming against the Joe Biden current. They're swimming against the propensity for voters to vote for change. And that means throwing out the Democrats. They can't do it out of the White House, but they can do it in the House and or the Senate. We've seen the last eight or nine elections, all but one, I believe, was a change election. It's somewhere the chamber flipped or the White House flipped. So there's been a sense over the last couple of weeks that Republicans have the momentum in the closing days of this campaign. What do your numbers tell you? I think we place a great deal of emphasis on each number way beyond what the estimate and the precision allows. I think polls used well tell a narrative like what we're talking about here. We know these are closed states. We know that the Democrats can run ahead of Joe Biden. We know that the economy is a problem for Democrats and playing the Republicans' way. We know that abortion isn't the sole driving force for the electorate, neither is preserving the democracy on the Democratic side. They're there. You know, if a Democrat can't speak to the inflation in the economy, they're going to have a big problem. So I think these are the kinds of things we know from polling that are useful in sort of setting a narrative and sort of providing the media and the public with an independent source of information. But when we start slicing and dicing, you know, one point here and two point there. So that's, again, a long answer to the question. Yeah, these races are close and they've been close. And I think some of the Democrats who were ahead still are in places like Pennsylvania, Georgia in the Senate race, in Arizona. But could the Republican win in each of those cases? Yeah, the country's very divided and the Democrats probably wouldn't be in it if it weren't for you know what Donald Trump has done both for the Republican Party and against the Republican Party by playing such an important role in the nomination of these candidates who have flaws. I'm Doug Sovereign, and thanks for listening to this final episode of The Home Stretch. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out the full series, which covers inflation, abortion, crime, election integrity, and the Latino vote. It's available wherever you listen to podcasts. This series was produced by Lauren Barry and Cooper Mall, writing by Chris Blake, sound design by Zach Clark. Odyssey's managing producer for national news podcasts is Myron Kaplan. Thank you.